The Incomparable Podcast, number 42, May 2011. Welcome back to The Incomparable Podcast. I'm Glenn Fleischman, hosting this week in for Jason Snell, who is also here. Hello. We're talking this week, this is episode 42, and for the one person in a million who could possibly be listening to this podcast, we hope to have a million listeners someday, uh, who does not know what 42 is, it's all about Douglas Adams. This is the Douglas Adams podcast, maybe the first in a series of Divisible by 42 podcasts that we do over our lifetimes about Douglas Adams. It was recently Towel Day, a day established to celebrate his life and career, and in that honor, and because it's episode 42, we have a cast of characters drawn from across the spectrum of, well, not that much of a spectrum, I guess, but it is across something. Uh, (laughs) Welcome Jason Snell, the usual host of The Incomparable. I will be on the red end of the spectrum tonight. The red, you're the red end. Steve Lutz from an undisclosed location talking on an iPad. Hello, Steve. I was just thinking how much Douglas Adams probably would have enjoyed knowing that I'm sitting in a hotel on a wireless device that's sitting in my lap, playing his his interactive fiction uh, and and podcasting while on the loo. He's multitasking. And Greg Naus. Hey. Hello, Greg. Hi, Glenn. That's Naus with a K. Yes, it is. And our special guest tonight, Yaz Graham. Yaz, hello. Hello. Yaz is, uh, he's our special guest because he's a special person. Yaz is involved with interactive design and community building, but he also worked on the website for Starship Titanic, which is how I met him, because Yaz creates interesting things that compel people to go down rabbit holes and never return. If that's an accurate description of your work, that that's I generally just pick off small quantities of the population <laughs> and steal them away, and eventually I, I will have them all as my. I minions. believe that's a Doctor Who episode. Maybe they will come back to that. Um, and probably it's probably several Doctor. And Who I should also point out, Yaz worked with the H H two G two dot com site, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, site. I did. I, did eight, I was on H two G two dot com. I worked on uh, DouglasAdams.com. dot com. Um, and uh, later on, after leaving, I still got involved with... I was partially involved with the movie and things to do kind of with, with one of the games and uh, various... And, and I'm still part of that one, crowd. Once they get their... Occasionally gets together and reforms. Once they get their hooks into you, yeah. they never let go. You can never leave mm. this community. Exactly. Except, although occasionally we get pulled in to do random other things. A whole bunch of ex-TDV people got pulled in to help out with the first season of the IT crowd. <laughs> Which makes um, beautiful, perfect sense. Yeah. So, and in fact, um, Sean Solley, who was, uh, who was one of the main TDV techies, um, TDV being the digital village, the company which uh, Douglas was creative director of, um, uh, is the main geek on set at, for the IT crowd, for all series of the IT crowd. You have some marvelous pictures on Flickr of the set design that he did for that with the, uh, the amount of stuff yes. that he kept in his basement, and people laughed at him until the show premiered and it was all unleashed onto television. Exactly. And there's, in season one, there's... Um, God, what have we got? There's, there's my, my father-in-law's Commodore pet has priced pride of place on the season one set oh that's oh um, i i love that i had a commodore pet when i was a kid and, and the, but that's the really old model it's the like metal key tiny metal keyboard model no now, less. now we're gonna yeah. have to do an it crowd episode you oh, know man. that's gonna be yeah. so, but, so commodore, commodore 64 wait loved. i've got a transition the pet the pet douglas adams one of his first computers he used was a commodore pet apparently according to his biography really i didn't know his that. biography he used the macintosh Later, but so Douglas Adams. Douglas Adams is an unwieldy person to talk about. Not just because he was over six feet tall and spindly, not just because he was interested in everything, but the man. My God! Every time I look at Douglas Adams, I think I know what he actually did with his life. You know, he died at a young age. Died at forty-nine, and I always think about that Tom Lehrer quote about Mozart. Tom Lehrer was, you know, uh, singing music in the nineteen fifties, and he had this line when he was about thirty-five. He said, "It is a sobering thought that when Mozart was my age, he had been dead for two years." And I think that about Douglas Adams. Now, he's got six years on me when he died, but I think if I could do a fraction of what man did, he wrote for Doctor Who. He was uh, worked uh, with Graham Cleese. He was appeared in Monty Python. He uh, collaborated with musicians. He was Stephen Fry's very good friend. He was an early Macintosh user. He did a documentary about hypertext in 1990. You know, 
And that's in addition to what he's, of course, best known for, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Quadrology, Quintology, which is actually a trilogy. Um, so I, I thought it might be fun to start with, you know, what the thing is out of all that. What do you, I mean, we're all here because Douglas Adams influenced our lives and we remember him fondly, his work. And, um, you know, what do you remember best? What influenced you most? Steve, why don't you start? Because I know you said that uh, in email that Douglas Adams is a great influence on, on what you've done with your life. Well, I haven't really done so much with it, but he was an influence. Uh, yeah, I actually um, originally heard about Hitchhiker's Guide because I was into interactive fiction, and I was a big Infocom fan back in the 80s. And uh, I had never heard of Hitchhiker's Guide, and I ran across uh, the Steve Moretzky, Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, all-text adventure uh, back in 1984 when it came out in one of their catalogs. So I gave it a go and immediately fell in love with his prose, um, just – there's something so marvelous about the way he constructs sentences, these gloriously complex, compound, almost ridiculously so, uh, you know, just always teetering on the brink of run-on sentences. And um, it, it was at that point that, as somebody who was always interested in humor and comedy, that I realized just how important sentence structure is to uh, to actual humor. And, uh, and the fact that uh, so much of of the payoff for the punchline is the buildup. And, uh, and he really was a master of that. And, um, so after playing through the games, I, I picked up the books and, and, uh, you know, was hooked from page one of the first book. And, uh, I have done some humor writing. Yeah. Some of it, you know, could be described as humor, I suppose. Um, and and I've never forgotten those lessons, but uh, you know, I guess in some ways I, I would say that uh, those lessons have in fact been what caused me to, uh, to to write less than I probably should, because I've become such a stickler for things like word choice and and sentence structure that uh, that I find myself so wrapped around the axle trying to put together the perfect sentence with just the right timbre and the, just the right uh, rhythm that uh, I never finish a damn paragraph. <laughs> Well, the good thing is to know that that Douglas Adams also apparently agonized over everything. So it's it's some relief, you know. There's the people who write uh, prose; they sit down and they write three thousand words in a couple hours, and it's and that's what goes into the book. And then there's people who agonize to make it just right and just perfect. And I sympathize with them much more. It's like you know, you know the the, the quote that that Douglas had about right, that saying that writing comedy is easy. You just take a blank piece of paper and then stare at it until your forehead bleeds. <laughs> That is excellent, Greg. What about you? What's your Douglas? Ad- What's your Douglas Adams special man? <laughs> um, well, I was a young boy, um, and I was homesick from school. And my mom was tired of me just moaning quietly to myself, and so she went to the library, and she just picked something, and she picked um, she picked something off the shelf at random, and it turned out it was the third Hitchhiker book. And she brought it home to me, and she dropped it in my lap, and she said, "Shut your pie hole and read." And I read, and it made no sense at all, because it starts off with Arthur on prehistoric Earth. (laughs) And uh, I I picked the story up literally two-thirds of the way through, and I was absolutely blown away. I I read it all that day, and then I read the whole book, and then I read it again the next day. And there are a couple of points where my life feels like it pivots when I was young. And that Mm -hmm. afternoon, reading that book... Um, totally changed the way I approached writing and comedy and really what was possible when you start putting words together. Steve talked about the sentence structure. What struck me was his gift for metaphor and simile and how something that's so pedestrian as comparing one thing to another thing can be made brand new if you do it the right way. I mean, the the classic example from mm. the beginning of the first book is the Vogon ship hovers in the air much the way a brick does not, <laughs> which uh, it, it's, it's perfect in so many ways, and it's hilarious. And I aped Douglas Adams for roughly the next 15 years trying to produce something a tenth as good. And uh, I don't think I've ever really succeeded, but my favorite parts of writing are coming up with just the right metaphor to describe something in a way that people wouldn't have anticipated. So it's funny at the same time. I had that moment recently when I was writing something for the economist about letterpress and my editor changed that my description of letterpress paper, you know, hitting uh, ink hitting paper, 
like a not like a um, uh, a French kiss, but like a uh, you know, but it's supposed to be a light touch, like a a brush on the side of the cheek, and he changed French kiss to snog, and I was so very very <laughs> happy for that word choice. I think the analogy worked much better. Uh, Yaz, now you knew Douglas Adams. You worked with him a bit, and uh, and so your memories, your your memories of Douglas Adams are actual memories of Douglas Adams. Yes, yes. In fact, Douglas Adams was my father. Uh, <gasps> no, sorry, I was a just... very special <laughs> incomparables. Yes, it, it was. It was. Well, I always wondered. Well, no, it was my mother who introduced me to Hitchhikers. She was um, something of a sci-fi fan, and she was listening to the radio. Usually, series. a story that starts that way ends very differently. (laughs) (laughs) Show us where Radio 3 touched you. Yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and and to be honest, well, what she did, she bought the, um, she taped some of the radio series, but my first introduction was one of the lesser known versions of the canon, which is the LPs. Um, oh yes. That there were recorded vinyl LPs, um, which are not the radio series. They are a whole new re-recording, but with the same, I think, an almost identical cast. And they were recorded shortly after the radio. They series. were recorded. They had to edit them oh. to fit the. I mean, they went because it was Douglas Adams. They went to exactly the full length that was possible with LP recording technology, if I recall, practically down to the second. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly, and they went so long that some of them, the, the needle keeps coming off the end before the, before the, the thing is finished. Um, the, the, the whole, the continual joke about actually it was Arthur whose right. upper arm was Arthur, bruised. Yes. Was one right. that, Arthur bruised was his arm. One, Arthur bruised his arm. Yes. Arthur bruised his arm, yes. Right, exactly. Um, so, uh, and then I listened, so I listened to, the, there was a Hitchhiker's double LP and there was a Restaurant the End of Use first single LP. Um, and I think the single LP is the first place where the Hagunenions get replaced by Hot Black Desiato and the Disaster Area. Uh, I think. But, um, sorry, now, now just, now I must be, be really That's the arcana, about the Arcana, Anna. the Arcana, yes. 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 Um, but, and I also listened to some of the radio series, which scared the shit out of me. Because the audio production is so good, and there's some bits, especially late on in the second series, like when Marvin is stuck down this massive shaft that has been formed by him plummeting into the surface of the planet, whichever <laughs> planet, the, the bird planet. Um, and also, uh, Ford and Zaphod coming along this uh, starliner that's been waiting for moist lemon-soaked paper napkins for several millennia. And the audio is so terrifying, you know? And so I used to stand... I was only, like, seven or eight years old, and I used to stand at the edge of the room just so I could, like, run out if it got too scary. Um, And so I read the books, and uh, I... Yeah, I loved... um, I watched TV series. I loved... um, uh, I think my favourite novel is Dirk Gently overall, um, but I also have a have a great fondness for uh, Last Chance to See. Um, and uh, then in '97, uh, I was '96. '96 was when I graduated from Computer Science at University College London, and I saw on some Sunday morning program Douglas was being interviewed by somebody, and he was mentioned his new his new company, the Digital Village, that was going to do internet stuff, and. Uh, I went and wandering around college one day shortly after I'd graduated, I bumped into somebody uh, called Andreas who was, uh, who I knew and he was like, where are you think you're going? And I said, well, it's interesting. I heard about this company, The Digital Village. And he said, oh yeah, I'm setting up their network. Um, And so he introduced me to the CTO, uh, Richard Harris. And then with the traditionally glacial speed we had of hiring people, so mere six months later, I was, I was Digital Village's first dedicated web techie. I was the, the, um, uh, back-end and HTML coder. On, um, and I worked on the site for Starship Titanic. Actually, the very first thing I did was a mini-site, which is still up. Um, and I can tell during well, having these conversations, I'm going to be continually referencing things that we need to then publish as URLs I'm, I'm keeping show notes. So, listeners, I'll get it clather as many URLs as possible. They'll be in the show notes later on our website. Excellent. Um, so, Don't so, show off in front of Jason. I'm trying to live up to him. That's right. Um, so, so yeah, we we did a, a little because Radio Four was was excerpting bits of Last Chance to See, and um, we did a little mini site uh, with it. That was the first thing I just did, like HTML frames in '97, you know. And we we realised, oh, hang on a minute, there's the Last Chance to See um, multimedia CD-ROM 
because that was one of the first, well, that was one of the early, you know, big early 90s CD-ROM productions where they just said, let's just throw everything off the CD-ROM, loads of graphics, loads of everything. Um, and this company called Voyager did oh, yeah. it. Um, and then we said, okay, who's got one? Douglas didn't have one. <laughs> Nobody else had one. Um, we found one mail-order company in Virginia that had it, and we got it shipped over so that I could rip the graphics off it, except it turns out that the company that made it, I'd now found many years later, one uh, a guy called Kevin Marks, who, whose life seems to run remarkably in parallel. I'm looking at him on Twitter um, right now, a tweet from him. just popped Exactly. Up. Kevin and I have weirdly intersected in loads of ways that we've only just realized um, in each other's careers. And one of the ways that we've intersected is that he worked on that CD-ROM and uh, had and was living in London at the time. And so if we'd known about it, we could have just popped across London to get a copy. Um, but uh, so and he also worked, played with my Mornington Crescent server. That um, Yeah, uh, but he, uh, so so I did various things, did um uh, uh, Starship Titanic website and the bizarre way we put the novel online, which was entirely in alphabetical order. Um, we did the DouglasAdams.com site, we did H2G2. Douglas was much more involved in Starship Titanic than he was in H2G2. I should, I should pause uh, you there for a second. We were talking before the episode, before the show started. H2G2, this is H2G2.com, which is now, does the BBC still own it or do they sell it now? So it's interesting. This is actually still under negotiation. Because oh, okay. they were talking there about shutting are... it down because they could save some massive sum of £100 or something by not operating any further. Yeah. Uh, but H2G2, yeah, exactly. this was, this was uh, Wikipedia before there was Wikipedia, essentially. It was a massive... Well, kind well, of. Uh, uh, right, but it was, it was a massive repository of information and kind of a hitchhiker's guide. Um, style yeah. or conceit, but it was real information. It had a, but you could people could edit it, people could contribute. It was less an contained so, much that was apocryphal or at least wildly inaccurate. It contained much, certainly at launch time. It contained much that was people doing really bad Douglas impressions. <laughs> Um, you know, this is the thing that happened. One thing that I've found is that any time you put up a community related to Douglas in some way, it just gets swamped because there is this massive myth that um, that it's a very that Douglas's humour is a very cult thing. It's a very specific thing and niche thing. And if you if you like it, then you're one of a very select type, and you'll meet people of your kind. And of course, it's bollocks. Douglas's humour, the whole reason it's so successful is it's very universal. And trust me, I've been exposed to enough fans of Douglas's work that that they're really isn't that much in common with a whole well, lot it's, of them. It's funny, we talked um, about that when I was interviewing for an article some months ago, was that, that that's one yeah. of his great uh, great things, is you think you're in a tiny club that's like five other nerds and you, and you have found this remarkable, special thing, and it turns out there are 100 million people in that club, you just don't see them all at the same time. Completely. And it's also because, when, when we're talking, both both Steve and, and Greg were mentioning about aspects of Douglas's writing technique that they really love. One of the things that it was really brought home to me when seeing people do bad Douglas impressions is that um, a, lot, a lot of Douglas's writing, especially as Steve was saying, can be lots of run-on sentences and, and really quite convoluted things. But a lot of it is also incredibly concise. The impact of a lot of what of his best jokes comes from incredible conciseness, and uh, this is something that people get massively wrong. They think of it, they they hear Peter Jones's voice in their head, and they go these wild run-on convoluted sentences, and they just die on the vine so badly. Having and you know Doug's skill was either in you know editing down so tightly to have maximum impact, or in possibly even harder being able to maintain a run-on sentence while maintaining your interest and still making it funny. He has a style that it makes people think that he's doing something different than he is because he's so quotable, and, you, and the, the quotability of it makes it seem, I don't know, not more trivial, but that he's doing, he's sort of being sillier with, with language than he actually is. Well, something that you said about yeah. um, when we're talking about his, his sentence structure um, really resonates with me because I think that you miss the point if you think, I can write a run-on sentence and have it be this crazy kind of discursive sentence and throw a bunch of wacky things in and it'll be funny. When in fact, and I think this is why he struggled so much to write uh, at a a decent pace, is because 
those sentences that he wrote were constructed very particularly so that every clause that got added had a particular comedic effect. And this is what Steve was saying, that it was about piling on of like you thought it was about A and now you think it's about B. And even with something like the um, the spaceships hanging in the way in the air, the way a brick doesn't, um, you know, every word of that is crafted so that the meaning can change on the last word in the sentence right and that that's that was the power of his style and i think it's so easy for people um who are trying to ape it to just to miss it to miss the fact that there's so much that goes into that structure it's not just a rambling run-on it's very specific since you, I mean, you can tell that he, he agonized over those sentences if you if you look at them closely yeah. there's one of one of my favorite yeah, one of the lines I was thinking, one of my favourite lines from all the books is actually from, from Mostly Harmless, when he's describing New York in the fall, when he's saying that um, the air smells like someone's been frying goats in it, and the only way to breathe is to open a window and stick your head in a building, <laughs> which is just, if you want the, the perfect ex- you know, example of like the punchline word that completely flips it. Is yeah. you, J- Jason, I, you haven't had a chance to talk about your... What what led you to the cult of Mr. Adams? Um, I actually think the way it worked for me was was similarly backward to some of the other ways. Although I, not as backward as reading the third book or reading or doing the hypertext um, Infocom game. So I thought I came to it backward, and it turns out I maybe just came to it sideways. Um, my local PBS station when I was growing up ran um, Doctor Who on Saturday nights. And uh, and that's where I watched the you know the Tom Baker and Peter Davison years of Doctor w- Who. Weren't you out on Saturday night? Uh, in 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 high at, school at oh, parties okay. with other people? Uh no, I was watching Doctor Who. What are you talking about? And those two <laughs> things are are I, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Before Doctor Who one one night, there was this other British sci-fi show, and it turned out it was the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy TV adaptation from the early '80s. Um, so I watched that and I, I recorded that on, I had it on a VHS tape and I, I must've watched that thing. I, I don't know how many times over and over again, because it was so unlike anything I'd mm-hmm. ever seen before. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I actually, I was, I, I think I was like an eighth grader or a freshman in high school. And I, I took a speech class in high school and we had to memorize a dialogue and I ended up memorizing the dialogue between Arthur Dent and Mr. Prosser as Arthur is laying in the in the mud between the bulldozer and his house, having oh, an wonderful. entire conversation about how um, he's not going to go up. That leads eventually to him to to Ford convincing him to Mr. Prosser to lay down in the mud. And I can still, I think, at times recite that from memory. So that's how I that's how I discovered it. And and so it was the. It was the dialogue, which was really, you know, very representative, as it turns out, that that struck me about it and the crazy ideas. And so from there, I went to the books and also discovered at that point that he was um, about that same time that his episodes, his season of Doctor Who was on. And he wrote a couple episodes of that. So I remember seeing the his episode, The Pirate Planet, which is really ridiculous. And it turns out the episode that I really liked from that season was uh, called The City of Death. Which has got Leonardo da Vinci, and he pa- paints multiple Mona Lisas so that and they can be taken and chickens and eggs. Yes, this is true, Glenn. It is true. It's not a key, <laughs> not a key point, but it is there. Uh, but the yeah. idea that that, that if you're a time traveler, one of the things you might do is go back in time and convince Leonardo da Vinci to pa- paint six or seven Mona Lisas so that you can sell them all. But that that doesn't work if the Mona Lisa is still hanging in the Louvre. So what you need to do is also then steal the real Mona Lisa or one of the many Mona Lisas. Then you can sell all of them. And this is the plot of that episode. It was by a guy named David Agnew, but it turns out that was a pseudonym because um, he wrote it, basically he, he rewrote parts of it from an, an earlier screenplay. And that's one of the best original, uh, you know, classic Doctor Who episodes. And I then, just watched that recently. And then, I hadn't seen it for years. It's really and Julian Glover so is in that. And it, it's a wacky, wacky episode. And then only later did I um, discover that there was also an unfinished um, Douglas Adams mm. episode of Doctor Who called Shada, which um, it's funny because by the time I saw, they, they actually have done a kind of a reconstruction. Parts of the location footage was never shot because of a BBC strike. Um, my understanding is it's actually coming out in a DVD next year or later this year. Oh, wow. Um, but with some bridging material and some redone special effects, trying to make it as complete as they can without that missing footage. But the funny 
they did a VHS right, right. One, so they're they? they're doing the DVD yeah. and presumably expanding it further. And there's actually an audio adaptation that they that Big Finish did, um, starring Paul McGann. That's very funny. I mean, that's sort of the pure, uh, complete Douglas Adams script. But the funniest thing about it to me is that then when I read Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, I discovered that. Um, Douglas Adams, not wanting to leave that unfinished episode just sort of sitting there since it was perfectly good, recycled large portions of it in the novel of yeah. uh, Dirk Gently. And, well, City, City of Death and that as well, right? There's elements of both in the right. same... Right. So, yeah. so basically, I got into Douglas Adams from seeing these TV adaptations and then went back from there to the books. And only in the last couple of years did I really... Um, realize I'd never heard the radio plays, and those are fantastic. But they, I'm a I'm a latecomer to those, which is ironic since those were the the originals. Mm. By the way, the uh, the TV adaptations are available for streaming oh, on Netflix. They are? Oh, okay. and in fact, I've just been watching the first three or four of them uh, as prep for this podcast and uh, so seeing think, them for the oh, first really? time. Oh, really? You know, there's wow, there's some um, great stuff. Fascinating. Uh, you know that that they did actually show some of the shard material in another Doctor well, Who. In the, in the anniversary special um, that Tom Baker didn't want to go in, they pulled the scene out of it and right. <laughs> slapped it in there. Right. In the, the yes. five Doctors. Yes, yes. Tom Baker is the only one of the five Doctors. Now, do you know why he doesn't appear? He refused to do it, um, didn't he? He refused to do it because he was still really pissed off at Doctor Who, at the concept of Doctor Who, partially because I think he was getting typecast, but mostly because he'd had an unhappy love affair, uh, specifically with Lala oh, Ward. Yes. Who that, is... that he'd married Romana, Lala Ward, and they'd been married for like 16 months, and then they split up, and he was really heartbroken about it, and he didn't want to do any more Doctor Who until much later when he finally got back into it. Lala Ward, who ended up married to... Richard introduced Dawkins. by and Douglas Adams. Introduced by Douglas Adams. Mm-hmm. Of course. Yes. Um, it all you know, comes uh, back to Douglas Adams. So doesn't here's it? the funny thing. I, yeah. I'm I'm saving myself for last. But I, I actually picked up the first, the Checker's Guide book, the original one, in junior high, and that's the first exposure I had to Douglas Adams, and I fell in love in the first page. So I have this extremely boring story. I saved it for last. I started at the beginning. It's really weird. I know. What is wrong with you? Technically, listening to the radio show on the BBC would be the right it's true. start. But it's of true. I remember coming back to yeah. it. I remember reading the books and then hearing that the radio shows had come out. And I think I'd listened to some of the original shows, but not much. I had the LPs as well, but the American releases, which I believe are somewhat different. I don't think I had the British releases of the, um, of the LPs. And thinking... Well, this is sort of fun, but it, uh, you know, I didn't quite capture what the joy of the radio ones were. And then I later read the radio plays, and I've heard some of the radio adaptations or the originals since. And like, oh, those were much more fun, and they were crazy. When you, I was reading the um, Neil Gaiman wrote the first version of uh, the Don't Panic biography, which I recommend, and I think it's had, yeah, as you and I were talking about this, like four major overhauls over twenty yeah. years. And each of them. Yeah. And, and what's great is if you read the book, I read. I just read the latest version of it, which is just a few years old, and there are four levels of footnotes where Neil Gaiman, where <laughs> Neil Gaiman say, will say something and some will comment on that. It's become Talmudic with all the, um, wow. the, the, the apocrypha and other detail around wow. it. It's, and nobody's allowed to erase the previous Well, they do overhaul some chapters author. and they've added some stuff, but it's, a, it's really fun. But you get from reading those, we all know, we've talked about it already this episode, and Douglas Adams was, had legendary inability to uh, meet deadlines. What's Everyone knows the quote. It's, um, I love the sound of deadlines, especially as they go whizzing past me. Is it, I have that right? Whooshing noises. Whooshing noises. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, in, when he's doing the radio plays, I mean, he would be literally, I believe, in a control room or somewhere, writing the dialogue that was about to be recorded as the actors are speaking the previous lines that were just written, just about, and um, monumentally, monumentally late. So it explains some of the craziness in the original radio shows. And he was always fixing, and every time he had the opportunity to do a new edition of Hitchhiker's Guide or do some revision, he always made changes. He always tried to improve on it and refine that the core ideas and take out the things he thought were sloppy or loose or, or hazardous and um, so Hitchhiker's Guide if you read different editions of it and you've heard different things it changed over the years too until it reached sort of I think a definitive edition um, I just got this crazy thing it was an illustrated Hitchhiker's Guide yeah, yeah I was, was going to mention that at some yeah point. it's crazy it's, the photography is really bizarre and um, it's kind of fun but it's really it's one of the weirdest things I've seen because it's sort of I, I don't they went off and they shot you know photography of the ocean for some weeks or months to make this yeah. um, odd coffee table book one of the things about the illustrated guide is that 
there have been several designs for Marvin over the years, and I think that the Marvin in the Illustrated Guide is the closest to what Douglas actually saw as Marvin. He always hated the original TV series Marvin. Um, because you know, I was actually just going to speak in favor of the TV series Marvin. I love the TV Marvin. series Marvin. I, I really love it. You know, it's it's funny because in the book he was he was amusing, but he got tedious after a bit. And then there's just something so depressing about the, uh, the mm-hmm. TV series Marvin that I just never get tired of him. I mean, watched uh, the first four episodes now, and it's just I find life. him hilarious the way he walks. Don't He's even designed depressingly. I mean, that's boxy, ridiculous looking if thing. You, if you contrast, so we, you know, we we should talk about the Hitchhiker's Guide movie also, which I really liked. I've got mm-hmm. someone gave it to me as a gift. I've got it on DVD. And um, the Marvin there, I think, is also wonderful and totally different conception as well. Mm. And um, what I sort of love is that um, the TV series, Zaphod, his second head, it never worked right. They spent some ridiculous amount of money for mechanical head for the TV show. It's terrible. Yeah. And it occasionally spits out something. And the actor, I think, was losing the use of his arm because it kept going numb and the blood was cut off. It was tied behind him. And then the movie, they kind of make the two heads work. And I sort of... I. I think the the movie was much, so much more polished that I think the two heads working seemed I was sort of disappointed that it was actually such a good head for much of the film. Yeah, you know, right. I, I didn't right. like the movie at all. I'm <laughs> uh, sorry. Who was that? Greg? I, yeah, I didn't like the movie at all. I mean, and in fact, even the TV series, and it's certainly better than the movie. But I don't like visual representations. The coffee table book doesn't work for me. I would much rather have this stuff in my head because it's so inventive that I see somebody else you know, render it into reality and it's wrong. Um, I think that like, uh, in the original TV series, Ford and Arthur are perfectly cast, but Trillian was Trillian kind of the ditz. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. It's just it's wrong. And well, Zaphod right. is terrible. And, and right, I, but, would... but Ford and Arthur are dead on in the TV series. Oh yeah. my God. Well, especially, especially Arthur, who's just, I mean, it was the same actor, right? Simon yeah. Jones yeah. from the, yeah. the radio. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, he's phenomenal. I mean, it, and he's in the movie. He's Rhodey. He's in the movie. He's, oh, is he? He's the, he's the, what does he do in the movie? I've forgotten. He's the Magrathia oh, uh, recorded yeah. message. Yeah. yeah. But I, I would yeah. much rather have Douglas Adams on the page or in my ears than in front of my face, just because it is so inventive and so out there that it, it's just, from my perspective, it will be wrong. I'm sure somebody worked very, very hard on it and they spent a lot of money to make it exactly what they wanted, but it's just not right. Well, the, the thing I liked about the movie, I have to say, is that it was different than the book. So I didn't get the same feeling of disappointment because I thought they reconceived of, of things a bit. They didn't try to be as slavish. And then, of course, I read not that long ago, and I don't think I understood this, that the movie, the movie was in the biography, that the movie that, that Douglas had actually worked on the movie, uh, I mean, I know he'd worked on it, but that what made it to screen was not too far off from his conception. That it wasn't oh, I, the filmmakers took it I have no doubt, it entirely. But the Douglas Adams I have read is now mm. mine. Mm-hmm. And it's been in my head right. for 30 years, and uh, I respect Douglas Adams' vision, but he gave that to me 30 years ago, and he's wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what I have in my head is... is, is Greedo uh, shot exactly. first. <laughs> it's, what I have in my head is... Marvin was boxy. ...is no, perfect as far boxy. as I'm concerned. Well, that's Marvin didn't have a shape. He wasn't boxy. He wasn't round. He was Marvin. Mm-hmm. And I, I've never nailed that down. Mm-hmm. And so to see somebody take stabs at it, it just feels uncomfortable this is these are characters that i love and situations that i love and you you give me a perfect transition which is i want to talk about since we're talking about the books five books right five books the increasingly inaccurately named trilogy and we're talking largely about the first one that's what the movie is really um sort of mostly about the first with elements of all kinds of other stuff mm-hmm. and the tv series was was really the was the first and restaurant in the universe is part of it too, if I remember, doesn't the series include the restaurant? Yes. Because there's a yes. hot black Desiato scene yep. uh, or bit. Um, but yeah, the uh, first two know, books are in the TV series. First two books. So, but um, you and know, the I, toilet flushing sound at the end of the universe. The, the, but yes. I would say Slarda Bartfast, my favorite character across all the books. It, I identify with him. It with is the greatest sort of, name. In, yes. In yeah. my name is not important. He says. <laughs> yes. What? <laughs> Slarda Bartfast. Uh, you know. You know that he came up with the name was. Um, uh, uh, Douglas wrote down he, he basically wrote down a whole load of rude, the rudest words he could think of I think he came up with something like farty fuckballs and then he basically chopped up all the phonemes and syllables and just rearranged everything until he had something that he was allowed to say on the radio but still sounded completely that's ridiculous that's like most gratuitous use of the word Belgium 
Did you tell me yeah. the one about that he also hated the secretary? He was making fun of the secretary who had to type up the scripts because she had to keep typing Slarda Bartfast, and he said he wouldn't tell the name. So the secretary's typing away Slarda Bartfast, Slarda Bartfast in the scripts, and the character is not using his own name for this whole exchange, <laughs> which he has to type it over and over. Maybe that's in Don't Panic. Uh, but I, you know, I liked, I loved Bill Nye, so I loved his portrayal in the movie. But I always, I thought, you know, they he brought back Sarda Bartfast in book three. He becomes, you know, more of a crusader. But I just love this man who's devoted devoted his life to making, you know, nice crinkly fjords and the fiddly bits, and then it's gone out of style. And uh, you he know, won an he, award. He, he won an award, but he turns out to be, you know, he's sort of a friendly guy. And uh, Sarda Bartfast, uh, you know, he gives them the flyer to get away when they're escaping from the uh, the goon squad on Magrathia, trying to. Um, slice and dice Arthur's brain and uh, who else yes. ha- who has people must have favorite characters I hear a lot of Marvins in this discussion Arthur do you identify with Arthur <laughs> yes perhaps depressingly so <laughs> and it put upon every man who is totally overwhelmed by events yeah that's me see that's that's why I never liked the fourth book it's because so much of, of Ar- uh, Arthur is I mean Arthur is happy he is and yeah. it's wrong yeah he's he's not meant to be happy he's meant to be frustrated and Put upon by everybody around him, he is—he's not meant for a happy ending, and hence why I think I said in an earlier podcast, although maybe it didn't make the final cut, that that I love the ending of, of uh, mostly harmless. Oh, that's where I have to. That, I, I I've never read the book a second time. I was so depressed by it, but I understand that yeah. book four, he, the Arthur's happy because Douglas Adams was happy when he wrote that, and book five. Douglas was very depressed. We wrote mostly harmless, so the book. It, it, like I remember reading an interview with him later, saying, "I, you know, it wasn't in that great a mood when I wrote that." See, I got book. that impression, and it, to me, so much of of Douglas Adams' work, and maybe this is a reflection on just his state of mind throughout much of his life, but was was based on just utter frustration. Um, it, I mean, Arthur. I, I don't know to what extent uh, Douglas Adams kind of saw parallels in in Arthur, but. Um, I, I think that's also why the uh, the games are so freaking hard. The uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide game is uh, is fairly commonly considered one of the hardest. Too. And bureaucracy, which was all about, I mean, the whole game is about frustration. Um, ironically, it was considerably easier than the Hitchhiker's Guide game. But I mean, that was sort of well, the whole. That's because people would have burned down the infocom offices and the Hitchhikers again. <laughs> yeah. I never got that far through the Hitchhiker's game. If I, Hitchhiker's Guide game. Now, if I recall, weren't there? It was. It wasn't exactly. Was it futile? Was there a goal? There was a way to win the game, right? It actually wasn't yeah. that difficult a game, but it was. It very was the first interactive fiction game that intentionally lied to you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> mm. I got to beta mm. test that for Infocom. I was an Infocom beta tester in high school. Wow. And I did Hollywood hijinks and Ballyhoo and oh, uh, wow. Lurking Horror and Hitchhiker's Guide. Awesome. And they, they eventually offered hints to beta testers who couldn't get off the heart of gold. Oh, yeah, in fact, I think that was have, one of the oh, first routine. games I remember where they actually, in the manual, came out and said, this is how you get through this puzzle before you even start the game. <laughs> it tells uh, you it the wasn't, obviously the wasn't the Babelfish puzzle. That. But uh, the Babelfish puzzle, but uh, yeah, that, I think there are probably two sticking points that people reference when they talk about how how ridiculously hard that was. And one is the Babelfish puzzle, which is difficult but not impossible because at that point you haven't collected so much stuff that you can't really figure out what you need to drop in front of what. Yeah. And then the other, I think, yep. is the microscopic space fleet. Yeah. Which which is, I think, you're on board and it's swallowed by a dog, and you have to make the connection that. Way, way back in the first few scenes of the game, mm-hmm. um, you have to distract the dog. Oh, yeah. Oh, wait, you know, he can't, the dog can't cough, or the dog can't swallow the fleet, right? Right. Oh, that's actually, the cheese sandwich is full. If, if I may do a reading. Yeah. <laughs> actually, there's a, an app called Frots available uh, in reference to a, a spell in Enchanter that allows you to play old Infocom games. And I have it sitting on my iPad now and, uh, and open to a select page of the Hitchhiker's Game. Pray, read to us yeah, a while from... So <laughs> I shall. It's like a scam. So uh, initially there's a description of the cheese sandwich, and, and this is, I think, a great example of, of what I think is the genius of Adams and his, his way of just sort of stretching out a sentence and, and pitching things so perfectly for maximum impact. So uh, the input is buy cheese sandwich, and uh, the output you get is the barman gives you a cheese sandwich. The bread is like the stuff that stereos come packed in. The cheese would be great for rubbing out spelling mistakes, and margarine and pickle have performed an unedifying chemical reaction to produce something that shouldn't be, 
but is turquoise. Since it is clearly unfit for human consumption, you are grateful to be charged only a pound for it. A little bit further down, if you're wise enough to give the cheese sandwich to the dog, you are told. The dog is deeply moved. With powerful sweeps of its tail, it indicates that it regards this cheese sandwich as one of the great cheese sandwiches. Nine out of ten pet owners could happen by at this point, expressing any preference they pleased. But this dog would spurn both them and all their tins. This is a dog which has met its main sandwich. It eats with passion and ignores a passing microscopic space fleet. <laughs> I think I still had the fluff that came with the game. Pocket. A little plastic. And there was, in fact, a, a microscopic space fleet, which was, in fact, just a cellophone package. Oh, that's what it Empty was. Empty plastic bag, yeah. Microscopic that's space right. fleet on the bit of cardboard that stapled that's to it. I'm thinking of. I loved Infocom feelies. That was good. But now, Yaz, since you actually grew up in Blighty, was the food that bad then? Was the food that bad when you grew I up? I don't know. I don't think... I, it's well, a constant... It's I spend a lot of my time... Theme. I spend a lot of my time currently defending British food to people who haven't tried it. Well, I understand it. now it's, it's a different matter. Now, isn't it? It's a different matter. Well, it's been a lot all Indian food. Yeah. Well, no, there's the whole gastropubs. I love gastropubs, and there's certain things that I really miss from Britain. Now, I, I live in San Francisco. Uh, I've been living in San Francisco for the past five years, and I really miss a nice banoffee pie, which is uh, banana... That sounds like the sort of thing you could get very cheaply in San Francisco. Certain parts of town. <laughs> <laughs> yes, except then it's a very different experience. And you kind of wake up with all these kind of weird bruises. But, um, but did you... Were you, yes. were you given roadside... I mean, I, I think it's a... I have to say, of all the things that were most foreign to me about the books, which is, you know, I, I feel like I have a, some understanding of the culture and I've been to England a few times and so forth, but, but it's the, the yeah. food. Douglas Adams talks about the terrible, the sheer awfulness of the food so often. I think, is yeah. it just the food he ate or... I get the impression... You know, were, eight, were you being no. stuffed with black pudding at age seven? I get the impression that the food in England was at some point um, legendarily oh, yeah. terrible, but I, I've, been, I've been four times in the last ten years, and it's been great. So something happened. Mm. But there was a time, certainly. I mean, for pub, there was pub food was that bad, and legendarily uh, British Rail food. They had legendarily bad sandwiches. I mean, they were. <laughs> it wasn't just Douglas. There were loads of people. Just con- it was a constant source source of humour. But now that we've now that you know we've had privatisation, and everything, um, everything is is bad in a whole other new way. <laughs> um, uh, but, but the good thing is, it's, it's now been outsourced to multiple different companies, so they can compete on innovating whole new ways of being bad. Which I think that's that's a, a, one of the things that we quote in the um, in the trade all the time. I think Jason and I were talking about this not too long ago. Is the phrase about the um, the Sirius Cybernetics Corp's uh, Nutramatic uh, machine, which produces a substance almost but not quite entirely unlike tea. Uh, it, in the related the, the related uh, bit with the machines that they make, the that. Um, they have so many major design flaws that once you overcome them, you're so overjoyed at getting the thing to do anything that you overlook the minor design flaws, which is, I think, the majority of products I review seem to fall into that category. Well, yes. Yeah. Uh, for those who are uh, sort of just finished sort of rounding up on the games, um, one of the things I can point to as well is the, uh, in, the in the various links is um, an hour and a half session with Steve Moretzky, who did who coded the Hitchhiker's Game uh, with Douglas, and Michael Bywater, who is... He wrote parts of... He wrote most of Bureaucracy, actually. He was pulled in to write most of Bureaucracy instead of Douglas. Um, And he also wrote big chunks of Starship Titanic and the bump around it, and um, various other interactive fiction games that had nothing to do with Douglas. Um, There was a company called Magnetic Scrolls, which did, back in kind of the late 80s, early 90s, did a number of very popular 16-bit adventure games um, that had amazing graphics, and he did some some of that stuff. And he's also... Most famous connection is that he is the person on whom the character of Dirt Gently is based. (laughs) Um, And he's... So, yeah, I've got this hour-and-a-half recording of of the whole thing, uh, and it's what because... Uh, because Michael is this fantastic raconteur. And they do a whole load of, of um, reminiscing about Infocom especially. Um, and uh, so, so we will yes, link, I, will I have that link for you, and link I will link it, yeah. that in the show notes. That should be a lot of fun, too. I mean, this is, I think this is part of the remarkable thing about Douglas, is that he, I mean, we've talked about, you know, we talked a lot about the books, the movies, and whatever, but it's like, we're not even talking about the, in the video games, but also um, in text games. He was uh, such an early computer user, and he was so prescient about, he 
seemed to have the user experience in mind. Like he actually understood what people might want to do besides organize recipes in their kitchen. And I recall buying the very first edition of Dirk Gently, the detective agent, when it came out. I was a graphic design major in college. I'd been a typesetter. I've been trained as a typesetter in high school. I've, you know, I'm not 90 years old, but strangely have that career. And I got Dirk Gently's detective agency. I opened it up and I'm like, the bastard typesetted himself. I could tell on the first page. And you read it and, you know, read it that he was so phenomenally late with Dirk Gently that he had to not just write the book, but set it and output it on his laser writer and I think dash it across town, you know, to get it to the printers, to get it out. And in later editions were typeset a little more superiorly. But uh, but this that once backfired really uh, spectacularly in um, the book of the novelization of Starship Titanic, which was written by Terry Jones, because... Uh, originally Douglas said he didn't want to write it and we cast around for loads of people to write it and then Douglas said he did want to write it and then he spent a whole year not writing it and then it got to three weeks before the deadline and Douglas said yeah okay I can't write it and so we pulled in Terry Jones who reportedly wrote the entire book in the nude because that's what he does Um, and you know he turned out a book in three weeks and it's pretty good for a book that was turned out in three weeks and Douglas did the introduction and then sent the file obviously remarkably late off to the printers and it comes out and and you look at the introduction and it's got these giant swathes of white space and you think is this some kind of you know House of Leaves style uh, uh, poetry thing going because it does look fairly poetic with these huge artistic swathes of white space and no it's not it's just that the typesetters didn't in didn't load the file correctly or some, somehow it got corrupted <laughs> and the typesetter was just going oh we thought you wanted it to look like that That's so beautiful nice. but I, re- I recall Stephen Fry wrote something uh, I think when the, was when the Hitchhiker's Guide movie came out he wrote something on his blog about whenever a new software came out he would you know dash down the street knock on the door and say hello to you know Douglas's wife and say can I can I go upstairs Douglas there and run upstairs with a floppy disk and they'd plug it in and do the latest thing you know that wouldn't actually work and they'd be frustrated with and bang on the machine all day to get to do something. But I, I, I think it was kind of extraordinary for an author um, in those days and somebody who wasn't necessarily a technologist, just the, what he understood about what was going on with technology and how people would use it in the future. The, the Hyperland being a notable example, a, hyper, you know, a, a, a special about hypertext, essentially, before anyone had really, most people had put hands on a, you know, um, a sophisticated computer. I mean, personal computers were out, but they were mostly doing sort of boring things, nothing quite like that, and nothing that interactive with other people or information. Uh, but, you know, desktop publishing is early with uh, interactive fiction, all these sorts of things. No, he was he was definitely uh, a, not only a technology enthusiast, but but um, could write uh, just so well about it. And your, your, your uh, line earlier um, about... Uh, his understanding of the compromises that go into technology products especially and that he he took this he was incredibly enthusiastic about them but also really perceptive about the failings of them and how they failed in spectacular and absurd ways um he wrote a bunch of columns for um various mac magazines in that period in the 80s and 90s and and um they were always hilarious which is not surprising because it's Douglas Adams but they were hilarious also because he was so knowledgeable he was clearly a fan and he had this great enthusiasm and and so could be critical in a way that only a true fan can be and uh you know that's one of the things that that i i miss the most about um about him being gone is that i keep thinking about new technologies and what he would say about them and and i honestly will admit when i held held the ipad for the first time and was looking things up on wikipedia or other things in the on on a wireless connection on an ipad i thought I, I was struck almost immediately by the fact that I was, in some ways, um, using the thing closest to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and it had arrived, and that Douglas Adams would never get a chance to see it, although he did basically envision it himself. I think that, I mean, his science fiction is good science fiction, and it, independent of all the parody and humorous aspects of it. And oh, yeah. one of the reasons is because he's such a good technologist. Hitchhiker's Guide, the book, is uh, not not the novel, the the device in the story, is a terrific science fiction trope. It serves a lot of fictional purposes, but you could see that existing because, hey, here it is in front of me. Steve's talking on it. And things like the <laughs> the infinite improbability drive is a great science fiction idea, how it came about. 
I was just reading a book, um, a physics book. I talked about this on a on a previous podcast, and it's all about um, parallel universes and probabilities and high. You know, do, do when when uh, two things can happen, do both things happen, and create parallel universes. And as I'm reading through, he starts to talk about probability and this crazy like cutting edge physics of, of probability in multiple universes. And all of a sudden, I realized, you know, oh my god. He is talking about the infinite and probability drive here. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's one of the improb- infinite probability drive. I think is my favorite MacGuffin uh, uh, out of all the books. Out yeah, of the I agree. Story because it's um, the way he the, the famous story about how he came up with it was that he had just because he was making everything up as he went along. Um, he had just thrown Arthur and Ford out of a Vogon airlock. Um, to die in the vacuum of space, um, which was a great idea apart from the fact that he had no idea how to rescue them. Um, and the trouble was he came up with all these different ideas and was defeated by the sheer improbability of them because, uh, the, you know, space being the size it is, he can't just have another spaceship magically turn up. You, if, if you know that, you know, as Bra- Douglas was smart enough about space and things like that, I'd say, no, this is just impossible. And so he got very depressed about this and sat down to watch TV and there was a program about judo on. And the thing with judo, the instructor explained, is that you use your opponent's weight against them. So if you have a sumo wrestler, a 300-pound sumo wrestler throwing themselves at you and you trip them up, then suddenly the fact that they weigh 300 pounds becomes their problem, not yours. Um, and so you turn the problem against itself and so he said, oh, if improbability is the problem, therefore it should be the solution. And so, but, you know, that's, that's the story around it. But the thing about about it is the way that not just does it serve its purpose there, but continually throughout the various stories, in that suddenly it's... One of the things I love most about this um, is uh, the analogy of... I've never really thought of Douglas as a sci-fi writer. I think he's a satirist who happens to be really good at using sci-fi to right. drive his Comfortable satire. Comfortable with all the, you know, all the mechanisms of sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, you have this sci-fi universe, sci-fi fittings, but at the heart of it is pure satire. And the heart of gold is a spaceship that looks like a normal spaceship, but at the heart of it is something completely ridiculous. Um, And it's this kind of... He has given himself ultimate license in a way that you now only have with, you know, that has finally been explained, um, the TARDIS, um, to have the ship take its characters around into the most ridiculous situations for the hell of it. Well, it's like it's you like know? Patrick McGowan being able to write the Prisoner TV series that is, you know, a skewering and a satire and a deconstruction and a subversive version of his previous series about a special, you know, secret agent. And the same thing as Douglas Adams had to work on Doctor Who in order to write something so ridiculous that uh, that uh, where he could he could have access to all of the tropes of science fiction that everyone was familiar with, and then turn them all on their head and just say, well, you know, instead of there being t- wibbly, well, I mean, now Doctor Who has actually become very much more like Hitchhiker's Guide over the years um, as a result. I mean, I think the more modern series are sillier about certain aspects of technology, and the wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey thing is much more Douglas Adams than original Doctor Who. I wanted to, I wanted to speak in, a, in a, well, speak positively about my favorite thing in the Hitchhiker series, which is actually, I know it's easy to do this because we're, we're doing podcast number 42 of The Incomparable, but the story of the building of Deep Thought you know it is it is brilliant in terms of technology yeah. it's brilliant in terms of satire i would argue that if that was a short story it would be legendary as a short story um because it it is so funny and so true um and in some ways then i also one of the things that i love about it and maybe my favorite revelation in the entire series is that much later there's an even bigger punchline when it discovers that this entire um, final computer that will come after Deep Thought has been messed up by the fact that that um, that the humans have come to the planet, the the telephone sanitizers and hairdressers, and the punchline is that the question that they've they've come up with for forty two is what what is eight times seven. Yes. <laughs> it's like I always right. knew there was something fundamentally wrong. Arthur says so. The whole the whole thing. I mean, and there's a reason 42 has a resonance. That story is so fantastic and it's so crushing because it is a failure of imagination of the people who build it. It's a failure of technology. It's it's just such a fantastic story. So I just wanted to to do some some drive by praise of it because it is it's easy to mm. it's easy to just take it for granted and it is 
it is brilliant and brilliantly, I think, realized given the budget, especially in the uh, in the TV series. But it's just such a such a great thing. The building the greatest computer ever, and it gives you the answer you want, and it's completely useless. It's, all, it's also full of so many of those great lines. I'm your advocate, trouble me not. You know, he might talk the legs off an Octurian mega donkey, but only I can make him get up and take a walk later. And just this, you know, endless series of little jokes and puns and the uh, the philosophers. We, defi- we, we demand rigidly defined areas that's of doubt right. and uncertainty. We right. demand, that's right. Well, I Demarcation, mean, the, the, mate. The religious satire and and the philo- philosophical satire and the sort of anti-religious satire all together uh, just about the absurdity of the whole thing and searching for this kind of unanswerable uh, the answer to the unanswerable questions and I, I, I philosophically I really appreciate that that it is you know of course we're always going to be questing for this but the reality is it can't be answered or if it is answered we won't understand what the answer is anyway I will point out one of the, the the superior things in the movie that is not in the books, but it feels very Douglas, is the bit where there's... It's the point of view gun. Isn't that the weapon in the movie? Yeah. And, they fu- and he had that kicking around for many years I little before references he got to use to it, it in a story. It, it sounded yeah. familiar. And so the bit when they finally get it and and uh, Trillian fires it at Zaphod and he says all kinds of things, then he grabs it and fires it at her and he says, it didn't work. And she says... Of course not. I'm a woman. And I just thought that was, it was, it walks off so perfect. It's like, I already know how everybody else feels. Thank you very much. I'm on my way. I I did want to mention something else about the BBC series, which I, as I said, I've just watched for the first time a few days ago. The TV series. Yes. Uh, And, and uh, Jason, you might've actually missed this having viewed it on PBS, but uh, pretty early on in the second episode, they're going through the whole, long uh a whole long monologue about how everybody on earth is unhappy and it's sort of working up to the bit where the woman in the cafe uh in rickmansworth suddenly realizes what it's all about and then suddenly the planet is demolished (laughs) which i guess is kind of a nice little mirror story to the whole deep thought thing um but i was rather surprised to find a cameo from douglas adams in that uh in that episode uh and more more specifically his naked bum appears. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, also- I, mean, I was amused Walking. to see him looking depressed and, and holding a lot of cash. And then I was, I don't know if dismayed is the word, I guess more amused uh, to see him turn away from the camera and walk nakedly into the sea. Uh, you know, his, uh, his pale British cheeks flapping in the breeze. And, uh, <laughs> You know, and until that moment, I had never really understood just exactly what a critical piece of equipment a towel really is. Uh, and that, that joke um, about the woman who figures it all out—it's like the fourth paragraph of the first page of the first book. Is—is is that mm-hmm. right? Is that's our mm-hmm. first inkling that the things aren't going to go well? I can never really Earth. figure out where the monologues which, fit because they move around depending on which version pitch I yeah. it is. Yeah, it, it's it's true. I, I said on two previous podcasts now, but just to restate, I, I love the fact that this is so funny and yet so dark that he he has the bold stroke of destroying planet Earth immediately. It's just... <laughs> you get it out of the way, yep. and then you can just move well, on. I like that he was trying to challenge himself. I mean, Yas mentioned that, that he, he ejects Arthur and Ford into space and doesn't know how to resolve it. I, I did feel like, in some ways, that was a motivator for him to keep writing what well, plus you need cliffhangers for the radio show but it's the idea is i'm just going to do this and that will force me to figure something else out so i'm going to destroy the earth i i'm not going to be able to go back there i'm just going to have to figure out what i'm going to do next what a what a marvelous comment on the man and his attitude it is that he, he has his cameo you know his big cameo in his, i do in remember his works, and he uses it to show off i do his remember cheeks. the naked man do you remember the naked man it's I just did not remember that it was Douglas Adams, though. It's so. it's a callback. Now, oddly mm. enough, you also mentioned Terry Jones writing nude before. In Monty Python, Terry yeah. Jones appears nude, playing the the uh, the uh, organ, not his own organ. I'm sorry. <laughs> In um, yeah. whoops. Mark that one explicit. Uh, at the opening of Monty Python, then you have Douglas Adams walking nude into the ocean. It's all it's all part yes. of the great circle. What is it with of you, life? British people? Like. And well, you know, you sent your Puritans over here. We're all terribly repressed. Yeah, and and then and then and everybody uh, 
joyously throws their clothes off and all runs into the ocean. Um, the, the the other thing with the exp- the end of the Earth, the in the movie, the bo- the moment where the Earth is destroyed, leading up to the moment, the moment that the Earth is destroyed, um, and you see everybody panicking and screaming, and then there's a moment where you see one old woman sitting at a cafe, um, looking around and just paying no attention at all and going back and reading her paper. That is Douglas's oh, mum. That's sweet. Yeah. There was the movie has loads of these kind of bizarre things in it and loads of references. Talking to people about it leading up to the movie's release, everybody was saying, uh, "I saw loads of variations on. I don't care what it's got in the movie as long as it's got X. If your X is in the movie, then then you probably liked it, and if it isn't, then you don't." Was I was a, I was infuriated that Beware of the Leopard wasn't. That's in my actually that, that might be my very favorite line. Oh, is it? All of the books. <laughs> I can't remember what isn't. I mean, I know that the line, the mostly harmless line, is not in the final. I think it's in the deleted scenes. Um, most of the rest of it is. There's. Uh, oh no! Not again! Is in the movie. Yes. Which is yes, and Bill Bailey's critical. turn as as the whale, which is yeah, wonderful. Which is, it's critical though. Um, that is one of the greatest. It's one of the. It's part of the crazy thing. It's like what happens to the missiles? Oh well, they're turned into a giant whale and, and a, a pot, pot of petunias. petunias. Of course. Oh no, not again! Yes. The pot of petunias, thanks to itself. Well, I think this brings us to the end of another mighty, mighty, the Just incomparable. Bef- oh no, not bef- again! <laughs> I believe. Oh no! Before- this podcast. We'll repeat in uh, BBC Three before we close Later. up. Before we close up, um, I, I mean, I, I discovered Douglas Adams a long time ago, and I got to meet him once very briefly at a book signing where I was a grinning ass. I remember the day that the news broke that he had died, and I was actually heartbroken. I mean, I had I'd read everything he's ever written. You know, I've listened to it in every and, and watched it in every media I can. He's had this enormous influence on who I have become, who I, who I want to become, how I want to write and, and how I want to be funny and what defines my personality and, and how I communicate with my friends even. And then he was dead. And I, I couldn't... Yeah. The BBC were very annoyed. <laughs> he was, was he late on delivering something at that point? <laughs> Almost it's... certainly. Um, it was well, no, it was actually because when they made the deal to buy H2G2 off the Digital Village, which was, you know, basically had run out of money, um, they also got a deal for Douglas to do several series for them on something. And then so the was it to get out of writing? <laughs> one time Probably. he was ever early. He's still working on things. I remember that day, too, very clearly. Um, my boss at the time was a huge Douglas Adams fan and had, I think, edited a couple of his things for various tech magazines. And um, it was very sad. In the intervening 10 years, and it has been 10 years now, um, what comforts me is just the fact that after 10 years, I feel like after he died, people were able to reflect a little bit about what his work was and you know i feel now 10 years on like the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy in some form is going to be it's, it's part of Western a classic yeah. and be regarded as a classic for a long time to come and not just sort of this silly comedy thing that happened in the 1980s and that really uh, warms my heart to think that because it deserves it because it is it yeah. is of a it is a one of a kind and it is brimming with ideas and is fall down funny and um so that's that's great i'm not sure i have an omnibus of all the books i sort of feel like perhaps cooler heads will prevail and uh, maybe constrain it to the first 3 but um <laughs> in terms of the canon but um some amazing stuff and I, so that that makes me feel better about it uh, 10 years on is that i think he's going to be remembered and appreciated for a long time to come mm. i concur that there was um I do remember I mean the the the, the night I found out that that Douglas uh, died it was it was on a Friday night and um uh a couple of of TDV colleagues drove over um in tears and we basically just sat, spent the evening sitting and reminiscing about him um and 
Uh, and it is to my continual regret that I didn't actually spend that much time with him when he was alive. Um, no, after he's dead, we hang out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we hang out all the time. Um, but uh, uh, bastard won't shut up. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of a surprise for an atheist, but there you go. Uh, the um, it was, but it is. The, I I can't remember which of you was saying. I'm oh, sorry, was saying it, but the the whole thing. Every time there is an amazing new device, especially from Apple, you know, uh, the iPhone and the iPad, and you look at it and just go, just this this desperate wish that Douglas was around yeah. to see it. And there was um there was uh, uh, Sean, who I mentioned earlier, Sean Soleil, a colleague at, at TV, who was one of those who actually came over that Friday night, um, tweeted the other day on the anniversary of Douglas's death, um, uh, wondering what Douglas would have thought of Twitter, thinking that Douglas probably would have loved it and anybody actually trying to get him to do some work would have hated it. Yeah, it's funny because the the one place that I was thinking where the uh, we're learning from Douglas Adams about how to just perfectly structure a comedy bit into the smallest... You know, the one place where that's actually helped is on Twitter, where you only have 140 mm. characters and you have to make every character count. It's Douglas's per- perfect medium. You know, he was one of the things that he was so good at was compressing an idea right down to um, to a key sentence. I mean, there was the Apple actually uh, took one of his lines and used it uh, in an advertising campaign coming up to to the year two thousand, um, talking you know shouting about how uh, Mac OS was was fully Y two K compliant. Um, they used a quote from Douglas, which was something along the lines of, you know, there's not a lot we know about the future, but we should have guessed that the century was going to end. <laughs> Memory was scarce, and programmers scarcer. Mm. Uh, well, I think we have to bring this to a close, gentlemen. Well, we'll lift a, we'll lift a virtual toast to, to the memory of Douglas Adams. A great man yeah, yeah. of all people. I, I'm always sad that he's an atheist because I would like him to be in heaven right now. That's uh, that's the. I don't know if that's an Irish toast or a reverse. I think it's a reverse Irish toast. That um, we'll do the reverse Polish notation in the next episode. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Greg Noss, thank you for being on this podcast. Thank you, Glenn. Steve Lutz, thank you for sparing time from your undisclosed location in a hotel using an iPad over Wi-Fi and Skype. And I've been pantsless for the last forty-five it- minutes. <laughs> with the rest plum in the library and in honor again of uh, uh douglas adams's cameo jason snell thank you for joining us thank you for having me well hosted sir thank you and yas thank you for being our special guest tonight well, thank you so much for inviting me and putting up with my relentless this rambling is, this is the nature of this podcast that you, you fit right in <laughs> so thank you all glenn fleischman signing off for our episode 42 of the incomparable podcast we'll be back Thank you.